Last episode, I said that I wanted to have Jake back on the podcast to discuss all the cool biology happening in the fall. Fall is one of those transition seasons, so we're seeing a lot of interesting things happening. Often when I'm talking about either the endocannabinoid system or the dopamine system, I mention that there are no isolated systems in the body and that we can't think about them in isolation. And rather, our bodies work in networks, just like nature works in networks. Part of the reason I named this podcast Bioactive is because I wanted to talk about biology and chemistry because they are not isolated, and we can't talk about them in isolation either. Biology and chemistry are deeply intertwined, and I have the absolute pleasure of living with and learning from the smartest biologist that I know, my husband Jake. Jake and I have very complimentary Jake and I have very complimentary knowledge on biology and chemistry, and we love exploring the world together. Also, I did just make a huge announcement on Patreon about some killer upcoming projects I have going on. Just a reminder, the Patreon is a way to support me in this podcast for as little as $1 a month. You can ask me anything in the messages. You can request topics and guests for future podcasts. And you can get early access to learn about everything that I'm doing. I'm also going to be uploading a chapter that I co-authored about hemp if you'd like to read it. It's typically behind a paywall, but I am able to share that on that platform. In the upcoming weeks, I have some really cool episodes planned on cannabis and autism, some amazing toxins produced by animals, and an episode with one of the authors of the awesome new study that just came out about these new smelly molecules in cannabis called flavorants. So this is exploring beyond terpenes what else contributes to the unique aroma. You may have seen my post in collaboration with Weed Maps on this topic, and I'm really excited to have an author on to talk about it. I will make a post about that on Patreon so you can ask the author questions. Anyways, without further ado, let's get going. Welcome back to the Bioactive Podcast. Today I'm with Jake again, and we are going to talk about probably our favorite season, which is fall. And I had an epiphany uh, a couple days ago that I want every season of the podcast to be the actual season of the year. So, yeah, right? I like that. So, season one was this summer, and then it just happened that we got into season two just as the fall started. And I think the timing's going to work out really well, where season three is going to be start of winter, and then we'll be back to spring. And there's so much about our annual cycle, and it goes without saying, that is based on the season. So I think that's going to work really well. I think so, too. And we can take an episode every season to appreciate the season. Nice. Right? So it's kind of cool. And we can talk about what we're doing that season that's differently, because I think something that we do is... Every year we seem to kind of expand the amount of things, (laughs) the amount of things we harvest or the plants that we grow or just really learning from the seasons. So we can always discuss, you know, what went well, what didn't go well, what we want to do next year. Speaking of that, we still have to fill out our our garden journal so we can... Garden notebook so we know what went well and what didn't go well. Too many zucchinis. Less zucchini, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Less zucchini next year. But something we did get into harvesting 
the past couple years were um, bear's head tooth mushrooms. In the fall. In the fall. So a I think people are probably less familiar with bear's head tooth and more familiar with lion's mane mushroom. Lion's mane is kind of toted for its ability to stimulate nerve cell growth and to help with memory. We'll talk about that science in just a minute, but I think it'd be kind of cool. Well, first I want to mention where we live in northern New Hampshire, we don't have a lot of lion's mane. We're really like not in that area where lion's mane is abundant, but we are in an area where bear's head tooth is abundant and it's a very similar species. It's in the same family as lion's mane. It looks very similar. But lion's mane makes this like perfect circle mushroom. And I'll upload a picture of this on Instagram. But it's this beautiful circular mushroom that's on a tree. But it doesn't look like a mushroom. It looks like like white icicles coming right, out like of this. Like crystals coming yeah, out. Coming yeah, coming out of this. It, it's out of this world looking. It kind of looks like it's dripping. Um, Almost like a dripping lion's mane. Wow, it does. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Like a lion's mane. I don't know that have have I seen lion's mane. No. Yeah, and I think I've only ever seen bear's head tooth. Yeah, and we found we found a lot of bear's head tooth this year, but we were also looking for it. You were. So let's talk about what we did to look for it. So I had just previously either found it on hardwood trees, um, but mainly I would find them on oak trees, which is also convenient because if you're a mushroom forager. Um, Hen of the Woods is also a fall mushroom, and that also grows on oak trees. But Hen of the Woods grows at the bottom or the base of oak trees, and it's brown. Um, whereas Bear's Head Tooth, Lion's Mane, is going to grow actually on the tree trunk. At and it's like, bright white. And it's bright white. One of the few white mushrooms that you can take home. Mm. And that's where, you know, the, the finding the mushroom, that's where I can participate. Riley is the... One who says, this is the type of mushroom we're looking for. We're looking for it because of <laughs> these qualities. Uh, where is it? I say, like, okay, what tree does it grow on? And here in northern New Hampshire, oak is, is rare. Uh, we're right at the most northern extent of oak. Just south of us, it's extremely abundant. But here it is, it's, it's unique. And so we go out and you know, both through work and through just, you know, because we hunt and oak produces acorns, which is a you know, highly sought after food source for wildlife, there's multiple reasons why we're looking for these areas of oak. And so I've identified some of those through hunting and Riley said, hey, there's a mushroom, it grows on oak. Didn't you say oak were really cool because they're kind of on a schedule of what years they're really productive with acorns, which ha is related to how much food source that the bear and the deer. And exactly. Squirrel. So those yeah. are those are called masting events, which is masting the, the fancy term for uh, not just a tree, but a stand of trees produces a bunch of fruit or nuts, which is their reproductive cycle. And because those fruit and nuts are really high in nutrients, they're highly sought after by a whole variety of wildlife species from mice to raccoons to deer to bear. Everyone's eating these things. And so what the trees do to overcome that is they hold off for a couple of years, save up their nutrients. Overcome all of their seeds being taken away? Exactly, oh, okay. yes. Yeah. And so overcome everything eating all the seeds they produce is they, they essentially flush the system with so much food and that's food in the sense of of the wildlife that it essentially you know it overwhelms them and if you know one squirrel can eat 20 acorns it's going to miss that one somewhere in you know in 
So instead of putting out, you know, 25% of what it could every year, instead it puts out like 99% one year and then like none. Right. And so different tree species are on different cycles. So red oak, which is around us, is kind of on a biannual cycle. So every other year you can expect a lot of nuts. Um, white oak around, white oak's a little bit south of here. You know, that's on a three to four year. Beech nuts are on a five to seven year. So does that correlate with like how well the young or how many young the animals that eat those oh, nuts? Yeah, because yeah, they getting... have more nutrients, so they're able to reproduce more. So anyone in New England would remember the squirrel Armageddon of 2018. <laughs> and there was this like crazy I mean it made it on the new it made it on national news how many dead squirrels, gray squirrels showed up on our roadways in 2018. Everyone was talking about it. And the reason that that happened was in 2017, we had an amazing bumper crop of acorns, of apples, of beech nuts. I mean, the landscape was littered with food. And so the gray squirrel population spiked and followed directly after that in 2018, we had zero, a zero mast year. I mean, there was no food to be found. And so these gray squirrels were traveling immense distances looking for food. I mean, they were recorded swimming out into the ocean, trying to get to islands. They were recorded in the most northern boreal forest. I mean, they went all over the place. And so it's all because of cycles. So they have a lot of young, and then depending on the food sources, the following years depends on kind of population growth and crashes. Wow. But back to mushrooms. All right, we started this at Mushroom. So is there any specific way you can kind of help someone find an oak stand or like wherever they're living? Of course, if they're in a very northern habitat, maybe they don't have any oak around them. And in that case, you still may have some of these medicinal mushrooms, but I would just look to other hardwood species of trees. So hardwood is is the tree that doesn't produce the needles. So it has like leaves. Deciduous, they lose their ne- they lose their leaves every year. Hardwood yeah. trees lose their leaves, whereas a conifer, a coniferous tree holds its needle. So your hardwoods are like your maple, your oak, your aspen, your birch, yeah, all of those. So as far as finding oak, you know, for us, there's a lot of people that are gonna be listening to this who are like, are you kidding me, finding oak? Like that's all we have. It's mm-hmm. all of the different oak species are extremely prevalent in the United States, you know, and we call the food that they produce acorns. In southern US they're gonna call them acorns. And so there's, you know, finding that may not be difficult in your area, but if you are somewhere where it's patchy, a couple things to look for, you know, everything comes down to soil types. So you're gonna be looking for elevation. Um, oak can grow on poor soil. Uh, rocky outcrops. So you're looking for those kinds of areas. But probably one of the best ways is that oak leaves turn color last. So your maples are going to have gone by, your ash has gone by, your aspen. And so like right now where we are, all of our leaves just dropped or are just about to drop. The bright colors have come and gone. But you'll have these stands, this bright stand of green. Yeah. And that's your oak. And so that can be some way to, you know, take note of that. And either that's when, where you go and look right now, although some of the mushrooms have probably gone by, um, or you just keep that in the back of your head for next spring and for next fall. But even if you find trees or an area where you see that there's some mushrooms and they look old and wilty and you definitely wouldn't eat them, there's bugs all over them, you know, put that in your phone, take that GPS point and go back the next year. Because what we know about mushrooms is the part we're actually eating and harvesting is the fruiting body. And that's often compared to as like the apple of the tree, but the whole rest of the tree is either underground or in that tree or 
you know, somewhere that's not visible. So definitely take note of it and pat yourself on the back for finding some and then <laughs> head back the next year. Yeah, we this year we found, uh, two years ago we found a nice big bear's head tooth. This year we went back to that GPS point and it was not on that tree. But that same area. The, there's this little step on, you know, this little bench on, on this hillside and my goodness, did we find a lot of bears head tooth. Right, and you gotta think the way the spore is spread in there, it would just be kind of opportunistic. So why do we care about bear's head tooth though? Like why, because before you brought it up to me, I would have never gone looking for this mushroom. Yeah, so, um, lion, well, actually, let me start by saying this. I said that around here, we don't really have lion's mane. And lion's mane is kind of known for helping with your brain growth, the cell growth of your brain cells. Okay, so it's supposed to be really healthy um, for your brain, and we'll get into the science of that in a second, but here's what is missing from the literature. We know that bear's head tooth, and then there's another kind called um, corallities, I think that's how you say it, and then there's lion's mane. They're all within the same family of mushrooms. They look extremely similar, like these white icicles, but we don't know how the amount of the active compounds in each of these like, we don't know if bear's head tooth has substantial amounts of the medicinal compounds that lion's, head, lion's mane is known to produce. Do we know what those compounds are? Yeah, so the active compounds are called hericinones. Yeah. Oh, that's because of the name. <laughs> because the name, the, the name of the mushroom is a hericium mushroom. Yeah, so the hericinones are known to essentially stimulate a growth factor in these nerve cells. But what's really cool is it doesn't just it doesn't just stimulate uh, your body to produce more of that growth factor. The hericinones themselves kind of act as a growth factor. So you have this kind of doubly potent way of promoting brain cell growth, and that's supposed to be linked to um, help helpfulness in like maintaining good memory and actually in Alzheimer disease the same growth factor is known to be lessened. So a good theory right now is people with either famil familial Alzheimer's or maybe they have like the start of Alzheimer's that they could potentially supplement with the hericinones in lion's mane mushroom and that can help them maintain their memory and their brain health for longer. So do we know that there are hericinones? In bear's head tooth, we just don't know how much, or we don't even know if they're present. No, they're definitely present, but I just haven't found a study that like direct that compares them. And um, you know, I would assume that I I read a different study that was identifying that there was a lot of anti-inflammatory compounds in bear's head tooth, but those are different than the hericinones. But the anti-inflammatory is also protective in your brain for different reasons. Not the cell growth factors, but just if you can reduce neuroinflammation, you're protecting your brain in general. Is that, and this may be getting too far into the weeds, but do we know if that's something that, like, is the gut extracting that? Does it need to be in a water extract? Uh... Oh, like, how? what is the best way to... They're, they're generally lipophilic compounds. I know a lot of people take tinctures of lion's mane, so that so would be... lipophilic means fatty. Fatty, yeah. So that would be an alcohol extract or an oil extract, something like that. Um, but I think, in my opinion, you could also eat it as a functional food, right? Because lion's mane, bear's head tooth, when you eat it, it's known to taste like kind of a crab cake. Like, it has a very unique mushroomy taste kind of different than other mushrooms 
So I think it could be a functional food or taken as a capsule or a um, tincture. And speaking of eating it, you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of mushrooms, but I think that they provide all these cool benefits. So I like to incorporate them into my diet where I can. We, we collect a bunch, you know, we'll go out. And again, we have this tendency of like, Oh, we're so good at finding things, but mushrooms are like the one thing that we're both just like, okay, we should, we definitely need to eat these. We need to incorporate them. But I usually put them in like, like soups or stir fries or something like that. Yeah. But what we started doing this year is dehydrating them. Yeah. And my goodness, did they dehydrate down to like, I mean, we, we collected a pack basket worth this year. And so we clean them, dehydrate them and then rehydrate them. And how do you clean them? So this is something, I mean, you definitely, with mushrooms, like, brush off as much dirt as you can because, especially if you're going to dehydrate them, you don't want to just, like, soak them in water or you just introduce, like, 20 times as much water. But we've also had, like, the wettest year ever, so these mushrooms were already pretty wet. But I essentially wipe off everything I can, and then I just, like, use the sprayer thing to kind of just, like, spray off the portions that look dirty because the whole thing isn't dirty. But, I mean, it's important... To clean them, how many spiders? Have so we many spiders. <laughs> and those little crevices. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And sometimes what I will do is I'll make like a dilute vinegar solution in the sink and I'll just kind of like dunk it just for a second. And then you just leave it like on a drying rack and just get as much moisture out as you can before you put it in the dehydrator. Yeah. And so we dehydrated a ton and all of a sudden you have just like this little bowl of dehydrated nuggets. They look and beautiful. then And then it's easy to incorporate those into... Yeah. You know, your other stuff. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think the research is really, really cool for, for lion's mane and these herisium mushrooms. I would love to see a study that directly compares those fungal constituents to see how they compare to each other. Um, but you also can get those like mushroom grow kits from like North Spore Mushrooms. Uh, where you can grow lion's mane at home too, which is really cool. Oh, that is cool. Yeah, just in like one of those bags with you just like cut it and it grows a mushroom up the side. So that's another another potential way if you want to extract your own and or if you don't live near oak trees, I guess. Yeah, or if you just want it to be more, you know, uh, controlled and less spidery. Less spidery, yeah. Yeah, but the search is half the fun. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times we'll incorporate it with, because of the, the timing of the year, you know, we'll incorporate it with some grouse hunting or something of that nature where it's fun because you're getting out, you're going for a walk, but you're not just walking to the woods like you're, you're looking for something. Yeah. Speaking of birds, something that happens in the fall and winter, birds migrate, right? Yeah. So are different birds doing that at different times? Are they mating here before they bounce and go south? Yeah, so I mean, it, all these different birds have very different life cycles, but the migration is essentially, so the, the short version is no, they're mostly breeding in the spring when they come back, cool. and then they have a really short gestation period, and that gestation period is, you know, where uh, essentially the sperm is meaning the egg, and then that egg gets fertilized, and then because they're birds, they, they're laying an egg. So right. much shorter than mammals who have to... Right. I mean, you know, the, the gestation thing. period of, of a moose, for example, is like 240 days, whereas I think it's like you know, maybe 12 days for a bird. So the idea is the birds come back in the spring and they, they mate, they lay their eggs, and right when those eggs hatch is when there is an unbelievable abundance of food sources on the landscape. So those young, you know, or the parents are able to forage for all sorts of different insects or whatever it may be 
with that specific bird. And neotropicals is the word for these, you know, your little Tweety birds that come here, breed, you know, raise their young. And as soon as those young hit maturity enough to fly and feed for themselves, they start to head back. Mm. And so winter in winter is the limiting factor in a lot of the northern U.S. I mean, life shuts down. Things stop growing. Your insects die off. I mean, there's, you know, your Animals water freezes up. can't survive cold temperatures just die. Just die or they move south. And so that's where, you mm. know, the migration came from. You know, you think of a goose. A goose is a pretty rugged animal, but it has to have open water. And so the geese that are here are migrating, not a, a super crazy distance, but just down to the coast yeah. where that salt water is going to stay open. For the year, they're going down to Maryland. Um, so, yeah, right now they're heading south. And that's because they're, you know, that incoming age class has just hit um, maturity, essentially. That's cool. But turkeys stay here. There's actually a fall turkey season. There is a fall turkey season. And turkeys are unique in that, again, we are at the most northern. We live in a really cool area. We live. We're a little biased. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, but we, we live at the intersection of the northern hardwood forest and the boreal forest. And. You know, this intersection of, of time periods and light photo period. And so we have some of these southern species. You know, we have hemlock on our property, but we also have spruce fir on our property. So we're just, we're at this transition zone. So we see all these cool things. So just south of the historic uh, range of turkeys, of wild turkeys, which is a ground nesting bird, right? They don't fly long distances. They don't migrate. Is just south of here. And we now have turkeys off like in Massachusetts, the, south of here, like, right? No, like just south of the White Mountains. Oh, south of where we physically live. Oak, the historic oak range and the historic wild turkey range overlap perfectly. Oh, that's really cool. Because of how important of a, of a mast uh, that is. Oh, that's awesome. So the reason the turkeys didn't go more far north of that was because winter. When you get deep snow, they have short legs, they can't get around, they can't find food. Well, then the humans got involved and we said, oh my goodness, look at how cute that bird is. Nice let's, and plump. Let's give it some bird food. <laughs> and so when humans started feeding turkeys through the winter, the turkey population started to move north. And so the only reasons that we have turkeys in this northern part of the state is because of human related food sources. And we see our neighbors do it all the time. Feed turkeys? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah everyone, <laughs> everyone loves feeding wildlife. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a different episode. <laughs> So that's really interesting. And so you said the cold is the limiting factor for animals. Up for here. everyone. You have to, you got to learn how to deal with it. If you're going to utilize this landscape, you have to deal. And I'm, you know, I'm speaking from the perspective of wildlife. You have to deal with a frozen six months of frozen woodland so all the animals just during the fall are preparing for this winter they're ready they're getting all their reserves up they're eating as much as they can and each animal deals with that in a different way you know they've evolved something different so um you know your woodchuck right we have an abundant woodchuck population they they're true hibernators right so they're fat and up right now and they're going to go dig a hole and they're going to go to sleep and they're going to go into true hibernation for six months. Wait, wait. My favorite thing is when you explain true hibernation versus other kinds of topor of like modified hibernation. 
<laughs> and you talk about how chipmunks are true hibernate hibernators. Chipmunks and woodchucks. So that you can literally take <laughs> we don't do this. But you can take them and like throw them against a wall and they would not wake up. And they're just out. They're just out until the spring. Whereas, like, a black bear... Everyone thinks of bears as hibernators. Right. When we picture a storybook, it's like the bear is sleeping in the cave. Exactly. But a bear is really just in a form of... Tope, well, it's it's an, it's in a modified form of hibernation. And so, if you go into a bear's den, you best believe that they're going to wake up and have something to say about it. Uh, and that's something that we do for work when we do bear den checks. You know, So you have to be ready for that. Whereas... Some species go into like, I mean, you know, their bodies shut down or your a lot of your amphibians are actually, you know, they have a glycerin in their blood that prevents their blood from freezing, but their heart stops. I mean, they, they freeze, they freeze solid into the, a, a, a mud hole. We had a turtle there for a second. Ah, oh, we did have a turtle. <laughs> that was a... Uh... He's in a better place now. It didn't Tur die. When you say it, it makes <laughs> sound like she died she did we just we realized that we're not turtle people. we're not turtle people so we found someone who was a turtle person and man was he a turtle person and very excited about taking the turtle so everyone, everyone she laid was. an egg that was she the laid. craziest thing ever yeah we still don't fully understand i'm i'm not a i'm not a reptile guy i know enough to be dangerous but um i could not explain to you what happened with that turtle speaking of animals getting all their energy together to survive the winter. Why are deer and moose wasting, big quotes, wasting so much energy making these antlers when they have to be able to survive? Like, also, for any listeners who didn't know, ungulates in general, which are your deer, your moose, your elk. Your hooved critters. Your hooved critters. Um, they make antlers every year, and then they drop them every year. These massive moose antlers are made every single year and dropped every single year, which yeah. is a crazy amount of, of resources that go towards that. It's an insane amount of resources. And, and, and so, yeah, so your elk, your deer, your, um, you know, your different types of deer, your moose, they all, like Riley said, drop their antlers. And so, you know, in these, we'll talk about a moose, for example, a moose's antler can weigh a single antler on one side, anywhere from 10 to 20 pounds. And this is of solid bone. So imagine, you know, so they're growing this, they start growing those antlers in about May. So they're growing them through May, June, July, and August, they shed the velvet. So if you've ever seen a picture of a deer or a moose, a male moose in the summertime, you'll see that their antlers look fuzzy. And that is a, that is, you know, a covering that is providing blood flow to the bone that's growing and so they put all of this immense amount of energy into growing these huge bones on their head then they shed that velvet and those antlers harden off and so let's call it august for a for a moose for all intents and purposes middle of september is the breeding period so the antlers harden off they need those antlers for breeding right it's all about who's biggest who's best who Back can who can attract a mate, attract that female, but then ward off or fight off another male who's interested in that female. So this happens for three, four weeks. You know, let's call it the second week of September into the first week of August. And then after that, I mean, boy, carrying those antlers on his head costs quite a bit of effort right, and a lot of energy. So they shed them and the, the pedicle is what it's called where the uh, the antler meets the top of the skull. You know, the pedicle kind of 
hardens off and the antler falls off. They go through the winter months without their antlers and they do it again. They grow them back. And so it's an immense amount of resource that is invested in really this need to have those antlers for about three weeks of the year. And it's all because it's that important to spread their genes. Right? It all comes down to spreading their genes and their fitness, which is how much of your genes you put onto the landscape and improving their fitness. So yeah, it's, um, it's one of the most wild cycles that our ungulates do, and they put a lot into it. Cool. And you studied moose. That was your whole background. I did, yeah. So that was my, my master's research was on moose we had. Oh my God, we have to do a whole episode on the ticks. On moose and winter ticks. Yeah, we should save moose for another episode. For winter or spring, for spring. Let's do that. Yeah. Because winter, I think we should do chaga because we've har harvested a lot of chaga and we understand the chemistry of chaga really well. You understand the chemistry of chaga really well. I just go out and knock it off trees. Well, it's still fun to talk about with you. So that'll be our winter and that'll be our spring. That's awesome. Cool. I also want to talk about in the fall, because we do live in the White Mountains, it's absolutely beautiful here. The colors are insane. But, like, why trees even, like, why this happens every year for the trees? Because there's also a reason why here in New Hampshire and New England, like, we, it's a huge tourist industry for people to come and look at the leaves. They're called leaf peepers. We actually saw somebody wearing leaf peeper merch the other day which is hilarious. Um, but there's a reason why the, le the leaves are so bright here, too. Well, to start, I mean, why does a tree lose its leaves? Oh, this is so cool. It all comes down to winter. And the changes of the amount of daylight hours. And, like, if we think of the leaf on the tree and what the purpose of that leaf is, right, it's a green leaf, which is because it has so much chlorophyll in it. There's a bunch of other pigments too, but there's so much chlorophyll that it overpowers the other pigments. So during the summer days, when we have super long amounts of sunlight, that chlorophyll is getting sunlight like the majority of the day and it's making that into energy. But as the days get shorter, we have less sun to interact with that chlorophyll. So therefore we need less chlorophyll. So some of the chlorophyll leaves, and all of a sudden, we can see these other colors come up. And what are the other colors? So, Well, the other colors, the actual colors, are like red, orange, yellow. <laughs> yeah, but the other colors are just other pigments that the plant makes. So these are often molecules like carotenoids, which is your, your orange and your carrots, yeah. or uh, flavonoids that give the, the reds and the oranges. Um, so you see a lot of these other pigments come out. And what's cool in, in New Hampshire here in New England states is we have huge variations in the temperatures. It could be, you know, 40 degrees one night and then 80 degrees the next night. You know, that's a little dramatic, but no, because... really not. I mean, this summer we had... Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Fluctuations are pretty crazy. But because we have those crazy fluctuations, while the leaves are still on the tree, the leaves produce more flavonoids in this region to protect it against the cold. So then when the chlorophyll leaves in the fall, you have these super bright flavonoid colors coming out, you know, through through the pigments and it's just insanely beautiful. So in areas with less cold, yeah, it's more they, dull. They don't need as many 
flavonoids to protect. Oh. Yeah. So then at the end of fall, when the days get real short into winter, you know, all the leaves are going to leave the tree because they don't need to be there anymore. And instead, that tree just wants to take all of that energy and put it right into its core so it can survive through the winter. And then in the spring, when those day lengths, you know, change again, it starts to put its energy towards producing buds. Fun fact, this is the same thing that happens with purple varieties of cannabis. In the fall, during harvesting season, the green chlorophyll goes away and the bright purple pigments from the flavonoids in that cannabis flower show through. Of course, some varieties genetically have more flavonoids than others, so the colors can vary quite a bit. But I'll do an entire future episode on flavonoids, what their biological effects are, and more about what's happening to that plant. And that's why maple sugar, like that's why maple syrup is a thing. That You're harvesting the sap as it's coming back out of the roots, right? It stores all its nutrients in its roots. So the bowl or the stem of that tree is just, it's just cellulose through the winter. It's not doing much. And then as it starts to warm up and it starts to send all those nutrients back to the buds, which would then create the leaves, maple syrup is just maple sap, the sap of maple trees that is boiled down. And that, you know, you drill a little hole in the tree and as the sap comes up the tree, it drips out in your pan and... Man, I love syrup season. Yeah, that could be a whole other... And that's it, it, the change of That'll seasons. That'll be spring with our moose. I can't wait. Yeah, we're very fortunate to live in an area that has changing seasons. I've always really, it. really yeah. appreciated that. And it's something to look forward to. It's like that really distinct change of like, you know, yeah, I can't wait to harvest maple syrup. And oh, spring is so special when the whole world wakes up. But we're in fall, which is when everything's going to bed. And that is a beautiful time as well. Um, yeah. So another thing about fall is we're always wearing orange when we are when we are mushroom hunting, when we are walking our dog, we are always wearing blaze orange. And that's because it's hunting season. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, we are hunters. We've been doing a lot more grouse hunting this year, which has been, and woodcock hunting, which are two birds that are up here. And um, we try to harvest the majority of the, the meat that we eat. Actually, we harvest all of the red meat that we eat. We, yeah, 100% of the red meat that we consume, we harvest ourselves from the woodlands around us. Yep, and then we do still buy a rotisserie chicken every once in a while. <laughs> you, got, you know, you, you gotta, just can't be. You got to be realistic. You got to be realistic. Yeah, but no, the you know wearing orange is important, and putting orange on your dog is important, no matter the color or size, because there's so many various hunting seasons open, and it's just about you know again, Riley was talking about being in the White Mountain National Forest, and it's a multi-use forest. So you have dog walkers, you have bird watchers, you have hunters, you have bicyclists. And in order for us all to kind of, you know, exist together in unison and harmony, which is very possible, and, and we do, you know, just being respectful of the hunting seasons is important. And so and safe. You we're, have to. Yeah. we're coming into hunting season and, and primarily uh, the white-tailed deer, which is probably the wait, most. Wait, so, wait, hunting season's in the fall for, like, a lot of animals. So... Why is it in the fall? Hunting seasons are traditionally set up around the, you know, the, the ecological life cycle of that animal. So we'll use the white-tailed deer, for example, which is probably the most sought-after game animal in all the United States. So here in New Hampshire, our hunting seasons start in November. 
our deer are breeding in late October, early November. And the idea, and those hunting seasons are set up to particularly uh, target males. And the idea behind that is that you are harvesting the excess of the population after they have bred. So oh. this is, this is going to come off cruel, but it's the reality of Mother Nature. All Mother Nature needs a, a male deer for is one breeding event, and then it they don't don't need them anymore so you know the idea is that the males breed the females and then we can harvest a certain amount of those males and you know traditionally we're harvesting them for meat and for the culture of it and for all these different things but we can do that because there is an excess of the animal and and if you don't i mean i'm not saying that hunting season is only for population control but we see when certain animals populations get too high disease becomes much more abundant, and that can also, you know, decimate populations. Yeah, I'm going to take a little spin on this. <laughs> <laughs> the only reasons the populations get, quote, too high or too low or anything is because humans are here. And so that is, we live in a system with these animals. And so we have to, we're here. I mean, we're, we're not getting rid of humans. And so we have to manage these wildlife species in a manner that coexists with humans and if you allow a population to exceed its carrying capacity especially amongst humans you run into like you said disease or starvation in a lot of places in the u.s that have very high deer densities you're looking at either a lack of forage or food or nutrients because the deer have eaten themselves out of house and home or we're now seeing diseases like chronic wasting disease or cwd that is decimating populations so it is important it's important to interact with these species in a manner that is going to, you know, where we are, again, taking the excess. And I wish I had a graph I could show here because there's a very... Well, we don't, we don't need to harp on this too, too much. Oh, okay, um. right. <laughs> Sorry, this is getting into my realm now. No, um, but I think it is important, you know, Jake is a biologist, that's his job. And I think a lot of people think that there's not a lot of science behind... Um, you know, the amount of permits and, you know, hunting seasons and all this stuff. But every big game species has a dedicated biologist in that state that is monitoring the amount of animals that were harvested and evaluating the amount of um, area that animal has to live in and, you know, crunching numbers and trying to figure this out. So oh, my goodness. We're coming. I feel into, like that's misunderstood a lot. We are coming into data collection time period. So. You know, we take an immense amount of data from moose and from deer and from fur bearers. So we have a really good, what we do is we get a sense of, we take indices or an index. So we're not, we don't really care. I shouldn't say it that way, but it's not as important how many exact individuals are on the landscape as much as the population trends, right? So the data that we collect is trying to get a sense for, okay, here's ebbs and flows. We know we're in a generally good area. Here's ebbs and flows. There's a lot. Now there's too little. Kind of come back and forth and get it into a place that makes sense. But you're right. We don't need to harp into the, the inner parts of wildlife right, I mean, management. If people want to learn more, like, please let us know and we'll talk about this stuff forever. <laughs> yeah, man. Let me loose. Yeah. <laughs> Like and share. Um, I would just say that part of the reason that that foraging for mushrooms and hunting animals in the fall is so attractive to me personally is that it really connects you back to that 
annual cycle of mother nature and this might get a little you know crunchy per se but there is something about interacting with the changing seasons with the wildlife with the animals who you know we get to come home and go inside and it's nice and warm and you know we curl up in our bed these critters don't you know they have to figure out how to make it out there and so when you put yourself in their habitats and you put yourself out there with them and, and you start to see how these things change and what they're utilizing, and specifically from a habitat perspective, what can we do to assist with making the changing of the seasons easier, especially in a changing climate? I mean, the adaptations that these animals have developed over tens of thousands, millions of years are now at risk because you know the moose for example and i'm, I'm getting back to the tick a little bit that's okay you know, i was thinking of them too the moose evolved to walk through deep snow and to avoid wolves so they have very long legs to get through very deep snow and they spend their winters up high in the mountains where a wolf can't get and then a changing climate comes through and the length of our winter shortens and a new parasite hits the landscape and that moose is not adapted to deal with the parasite. And the parasite's population skyrocket. And now the moose is dying because of this tiny little parasite that it didn't see coming. Because it showed up in a, as far as the evolutionary time period, it showed up in a second. And so, you know, I just, I think it's important to be out there and I'd encourage everybody to, you know, go and quote hunt for something, whether it be a mushroom or a plant a caterpillar or i mean anything like a flower i, I get more joy out of go if i just go for a walk down a trail in the woods i'm missing so much i just you know yeah you hear the birds and you see the sunlight and it feels good but when you're looking for something particular you start to tease apart all the different pieces and layers of the forest oh my god we have so much fun out there we, we we do we're looking for anything anything and we almost never we almost always have something to look for. Like when, when we go into the woods, it's like, okay, what are we, we're going mushroom hunting or we're going, you know, grouse hunting or. Yeah. And then you start to look at the habitat features and you start to key into, okay, so Chaga likes this tree in this environment at this place. So you start, you know, and it, it just, it, it connects you down to, you know, to the soils. To everything. I mean, you see patterns of, you know, what birds are around, what trees around, what, you know, landscape. It's beautiful. Fall's probably my first favorite season. I think I would rank it fall, spring, winter, something. Mm, fall, winter, <laughs> spring, summer. I do love winter. <laughs> so you just started here and went around the clock. <laughs> no, I didn't. Summer. No, I did do that. I, I do not. Summer. I do not look forward to summer, but I'm extremely appreciative of a growing season. I agree. And this summer, not having to water the garden once was kind of epic. And we had so many plants growing this year that it was just like, I mean, we saved a lot of time in watering. There's a very, there's, there's a very special silence associated with the dead of winter. I mean, there's nothing going on. You've got some of your mammals... Some of your, you know, overwintering birds, like your grouse, that a fresh snowfall with the light. It's it's so quiet. Ugh. You can't you can't put a sound to it. It's so quiet. But on the flip side, you go into that same environment in the middle of the summer, and you can't hear yourself think. 
because the frogs are croaking and the you know the the mosquitoes in your ear and the oh, birds are croaking and and so it's it's yeah you got to look at each season and appreciate it for what it is and the transition periods are just freaking awesome yeah that's why the solstices are kind of really special i feel like they are a nice marking of the seasons speaking of fall i gotta fall into dinner appreciate you having me on i fall is one of my favorite time periods love talking about it and love talking and thinking critically about you know wildlife and how they make it through the winter how they prep for it uh no thanks for being on and we were we are not recording a video of this podcast because we're just kind of chilling on the couch with our dog and didn't really want to record ourselves but we appreciate anyone who listens and we hope you enjoy your fall we hope you either find something cool out there or you just keep up with other people who like doing it <laughs> and send riley messages as to what you're looking for yeah help help guide us if, if you like hearing a lot of this biology talk because jake and i have these conversations literally 24 7 so it's just help me gauge interest because or I'm... yeah kick me off the podcast <laughs> All right, mad love. Thanks for listening. Um, See you next week.